Welcome to the Visma Ski Classics podcast, Usha Tulevi. Visma Ski Classics is the long-distance ski championships with 35 pro teams. In season 12, there are 14 races in 12 event locations, bringing pro team athletes and recreational skiers together. On this podcast series, we'll analyze the events on the Pro Tour and the Challenger Series, portray the legends of the sport, and help you to become a better skier. Hello, folks. Once again, this is Usha Tulevi, our great podcast. I am your host, Teemu Virtanen, and my guest today is certainly a name that everyone knows. He is a two-time Ski Classics, Visma Ski Classics champion, and he's always been in the top three every single year ever since he entered the game uh, in season five and we are talking about Tour Asade Yedalen one of the one of the legends I think you uh, to have like 11 states wins so far is that correct you are our Hall of Fame legend with 11 wins I think yeah you probably know that better than me so probably something around that yes are you telling me that you don't count your victories yes that's very correct <laughs> but you are a three-time Machalonga winner that you do remember correct yeah that's easier to remember it's a fixed number it was three narrow and uh, ever since it has been difficult so uh we'll try again and of course, you're also Vasalope winner. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But where are you right now? How, how are things in Norway? I mean, the season is starting very soon. Yeah, I'm uh, back home. Uh, silent before the storm is starting. <laughs> in two ways. Soon the kids are coming home from school and uh, kindergarten. And uh, silent uh, in the autumn training right before the winter is starting with all the competitions. So uh, it's a peaceful time peaceful time and of course we are as you mentioned uh, moving towards the season and Christmas and the holiday season as well uh, but we will now talk about uh, skiing in general your career Bismarck Ski Classics last season the seasons before and then move on to uh, training and a little bit about you as a person and your family you mentioned your family there so we will also talk about that but skiing let's take that next What really amazes me is that you're always up there. I mean, every single year you've been in top three in the overall results, the champion competition, the yellow bib. Uh, you won it twice, uh, but sometimes, and correct me if I'm wrong, but sometimes I feel that there's not that much hoopla about you. I mean, they always talk about someone else, be it Andreas Nigord or now last season, uh, Emil Parson, but you are the constant force. You're always there. Well, uh, I'm training. I've done it for a long time. I'm, uh, you know, I can't say I'm old. We still have Anders Sharkland around, so I'm not old, but uh, you're young. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm still young, and uh, there are some younger guys who like to uh, take the show and make a big deal out of it. So uh, that to make some noise. And you certainly did. I mean, Vasalope was finally uh, the big victory that you've been chasing after for for a long time. And, and this race, it suited you perfectly because it was a fast-paced race. Uh, unlike many other Vasalopets, there's been more like a sprint finish and you guys just kind of, you know, uh, uh, just a tactically very different. So, but then 
that race, what when when you finally realized that hey, I'm a bicycle winner, what went through your your head at that time when you crossed the finish line? Oh, when I finally realized I did make it, uh, it was really good. Although I was very tired, I didn't allow myself to uh, think those think through all those thoughts before I was at the finish line because uh, in those kind of conditions with the new snow and uh, it was really slow snow in at the last kilometers, a lot can happen. It was not that many seconds down to a very great skier, Anton Carlson. So uh, I wasn't sure. I uh, still knew that anything can happen in the last kilometer. So I said to myself, keep on fighting until the last meters. Which you did, and you also broke the record. I know that records are not really that important for you, but still a lot of people, particularly when it comes to Vasalopet, you know, the record and winning times are are quite important to, to a lot of people. But does it mean anything to you that you now are the record holder? Uh, no, it's more like a gadget. <laughs> you know, it's cool. <laughs> it's cool to have, but uh, for me as a skier, uh, as skiers, we are not talking about records, but... Uh, uh, like historical events and uh, trophies and so on. It's uh, it's a nice to have in the pocket as well, yes. Of course it is. But the last season, going back to that, and if you evaluate that season, you were second, you know, once again, uh, on the podium and the overall results after, um, of course, Emily Parson. Uh, but how would you sort of analyze the season from your perspective? Did it go exactly as you planned or... Did you have any problems there, or <laughs> no one, uh, nothing ever goes as planned. <laughs> so uh, it's a lot of things happening uh, all around, and you have to uh, change the plan and uh, rethink it and do the best out of it all the time. So uh, yeah, last winter was started out uh, pretty intense for me, making my, myself a new team and the COVID situation with the traveling restrictions and a smaller team made it a lot of extra job but uh, in the middle part of the season and through all these grand uh, races I had a really good run and then in the end we had a pretty hard <laughs> finish in Sweden so uh, yeah it was uh, an interesting season for sure Indeed, and you mentioned that you had a new team. You, of course, in the past, you represented uh, Team Santander that then became Team uh, Ragde Ayendom, now Team Ragde Charge, and basically they are the Auckland Brothers uh, team. But now you have your own, Team Expand Fuel. Uh, how and why did that change happen? Or did you just felt that you needed something, something new, something different? Well, every team needs to change some part. I had a really good run at... Uh with the Auckland brothers and their team. I had a great time for a long time. And uh, then I had to find or make myself a new team and uh, uh, expand. Uh, my main sponsor from uh, Hönfoss, he already had a cooperation with uh, Ingeborg Dahl and Christopher Nielsen, and I joined them and we, well, made it a little bit more professional with uh, Fuel of Norway. So uh, now we're traveling around trying to trying to beat the big teams. We're not that big, at least not in uh, service and uh, financials, but we still 
we still have a lot to do about uh, when it comes to the competition, I think. And you mentioned that in the, pre- the previous question that you had, since you had the new team, there were some hurdles, some, some problems that you had to face. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, of course, it must have been a little bit more difficult or different, you know, from, from the big team that you uh, represented before. Uh, you mentioned the waxing, for example. What were kind of the struggles that you had to face in a new team, in a smaller team, you being in the lead? Yeah, um, I have combined roles. I'm, uh, I'm a team director and all that goes along with that, with uh, putting together and finding the the clothes, the sponsors, the ordering of uh, cars, tickets, airplane, uh, accommodations, everything. Also, uh, on the race days with the, the bibs and so on. We have, uh, I, uh, of course, I'm a racer doing the training and also a ski tester, you know. I'm not a waxer. I have nothing to do with waxing. I know nothing about that. But I uh, have to make sure that we have waxers all the, all the time and uh, me and the other athletes are with helping as ski testers as well. So we have some extra jobs. So it's good to have... Uh, uh, what should I say? Eager uh, athletes with me who are used to do more than just train and relax. Pretty much all of them are uh, into some extra work or doing a little extra. So uh, it's not a vacation when they are traveling with my team. Certainly not. It sounds to me that your plate is uh, completely full. Uh, you need to do so many things. But does that ever ever affect your? I assume not because you always perform so well, but. I would think that it would affect your, you know, performance or your concentration on 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 focus on races if you have to do do so much. Or, or does it? Or does it give a good balance that you can maybe take your mind off from racing? Yeah, for me, it at least helps taking my mind off things uh, sometimes. And uh, I think it's like the rest of the life. If you if the time controls you, then you're running out of time. As long as you control time and you own all your uh, tasks to do, then I think it's just uh, an interesting life. Indeed. Uh, what do you want to achieve with your t- uh, team? You just mentioned that you're building up and you're all working really hard. But sort of in the long run, besides your own performances, but with the team, where do you want to see your team in, in, in the future? Oh, we want to show uh, to pretty much all the younger skiers out there that uh, it's possible to do both skiing on high level, uh, at least with my team, and also do an education at the side. We want to show that you don't have to specialize in cross-country skiing at an age of 12. You can do it later. You can keep training with uh, multiple sports for a long time. We want to include more people, let them have fun for a longer time. That's the intention and the philosophy of the team. And then what about this summer? How different has it been, the summer, the dryland season, uh, this time around compared to the, uh, the last, which was your first time then? Well, it has been, uh, we are increasing in numbers. So we are more athletes and we are also working with the uh, training camp for young guys for next summer 
we had this COVID situation, so I had to cancel it for this summer, but we are still working on it for next summer. So it's a lot of extra <laughs> extra tasks and fun to do about that. And uh, of course, there are training, but this season we haven't had that much of a traveling uh, holiday. It's been more like staying in Norway, tenting a little around and visiting cabins and so on. So I've done some training, had an injury, so it's not been perfect, but done a lot of, what you say, ground training, ready, prepared to do the winter training soon. We'll talk about the training a little bit later Later on. I'm really keen on, on learning and hearing about your your methods, but still about your team. Uh, you mentioned your young skiers and you're building up, but you're also signing uh, other great uh, names, big names, uh, Emilia Flett and, and, and so forth. Is that also in kind of your in, in your sights, you know, that you will build up a really strong professional team? And are you working on any other, uh, you know, uh, uh, possibilities? Of course, we uh, we have also a main focus on uh, giving the girls uh, a fair chance for competing. So we have actually more girls than men at the team. We are four girls and three boys. And uh, when Emilie Fletten was uh, available at the market for a team, it was a perfect match for Team Expand Fuel. So uh, she's joining us for the winter and... Yeah, she's. Uh, I think she will be uh, our leading star in the coming uh, coming years. Speaking of that, and the, the upcoming season, season twelve, what are you hoping, you know, for for your team now and then personally? But let's talk about your team first for this year. Now you know your team a little bit better. It's the second year for you. Kind of realistic goals, yeah, from your perspective. Uh. I think uh, we uh, we have the possibilities to fight for uh, the victory and the podiums uh, for every weekend in both the male and the female uh, competition. Uh, there are also a lot of the bibs we can fight for. I think it's a bit too early to fight for the team competition as the top uh, we might look for the podium in the team's competition, but uh, to start with, I think we have to focus on uh, individual performances. Speaking of which, then what about yourself? Uh, of course, you will be the one fighting for the podium places, but you pretty much achieved everything in Vismaski Classics and also in cross-country skiing uh, in general. Uh, but what, what do you hope to achieve this coming year? Or just this is the just a champion title. Uh, yes, <laughs> for uh, for me it's still uh, I'm fighting for the yellow bib. I think that one is really interesting. I think uh, Marcia Longa is a uh, really cool race, which I would love to rewin to do it once more. And also Birkin is a race I haven't won yet so i'm really looking into that one as well yeah that could be the one you know and also you're defending Vasilopet victory so that's gonna be of important. course of course 
let's talk about Visma Ski Classics. You've been part of this since the season five, quite a long time now. And of course, it has evolved quite a lot. And you've been a sort of an innovator, uh, something I also want to talk about very soon, coming up with new ideas. But now when you think about the brand and, and Visma Ski Classics, long distance skiing, you coming from the traditional skiing, being at the Olympics and, and the, the World Championships, a medalist, so forth. When you stepped in, first of all, how did it actually happen? And, and why did you step in at that time? We're still you know, pretty young back then. You could have continued in tra- traditional skiing, but you wanted to do long distance skiing. Why back then? I've always uh, liked the longer races, the 30 and the 50 kilometers in the regular skiing, but there are not that many of them. And uh, actually you have to qualify through shorter races. I really like the competition, which are two hours and maybe three hours. They are really uh, interesting. And especially if they are going hard from the start, then it's, uh, then you're just so tired in the end. And I really like that way of competing for a longer period of time. You know, if you're, uh, for me, running at uh, 100 meter, it's, yeah, you can run it, but still it don't feel like you have uh, used all your powers. You have you can go back and do it once more, and maybe it will be get even faster, you know. But if you have done a Birken or a Vasloppe, you're not going back to the start, and you believe that you can do it faster. So then you're really, you're all out when you're done, and that's a really good feeling. So then I did... Uh, Auckland uh, brothers approach you, and if so, were you like immediately intrigued by this and said, "Yes, I will come," or kind of let the different? What happened? Yes, there? and they had even been in contact with me before I came over to the long distance races. They, uh, I've known the Auckland brothers for a, for a long time, and they. Well, we have had an, uh, had an eye for each other, and uh, for. A longer time because I've always liked the longer races. I've always liked the way you're competing and the Visma Ski Classics. But still, I've always had a uh, wish for making it in the Olympics and the World Championships as well. You know, so it's actually um, yeah. When should you do the switch? Is the question. And when you did it, I mean, then the first. Season, season five, how did you feel about that? Was it exact, exactly what you expected or were you surprised by anything or it was kind of the business as usual, even way back then? Oh, the most uh, surprisingly was uh, the um, achievement of uh, Petre Liasen that year, I think. I didn't expect him. We were on the national team together before we uh, changed over to the Visma Ski Classics and I hadn't... Uh, seen him do double pulling that well before because there is a change to doing coming from skating diagonal to only doing double pulling so uh, it's a change of uh, both training and performance as well you know so yeah it's um, now the re- it's been developing every year since so that's actually interesting and real cool to be a part of 
why was he why did that change happen to him you know why was he suddenly so good because you're not the the only one kind of wondering about that because he was a good skier i think he was fourth at the world cup that was his best uh, result but it was a skating race and then suddenly he became certainly one of the best and sometimes even unbeatable when when he had you know his good day uh but how was that possible you know that suddenly some something like that happened you know it was just a double pulling training or or yeah I think he was more, uh, even more than me, found all the longer races when we were uh, at the national team together. Uh, we were training a lot together then, and uh, we had some really hard uh, intervals where we could see his uh, level of uh, oxygen uptake and the speed in the apple. So we knew he he had a big engine, but. Uh, Rarely he made it out in the regular skiing, in the World Cup uh, races. So we knew he was a really good skier, but uh, didn't quite make it. So uh, just like Sinus Östensen, he has <laughs> for many, many training sessions proven him as a really great skier, but has not gotten the quite the results which uh, his performance levels, actually we as skiers know they are. So I think he just found his uh, he found his home in the two hour three hour long races and especially at the end of the season he's been really good. But this has also uh, fitted you pretty well. I mean, you you have two bronze medals, you know, the 50k race in 2011, and then also a bronze medal from a 15 kilometer race. Uh, the World Championships, you know, 2013, two gold medals in relays at 2011 and 2013. You've been participated in three Olympics, three World Championships. So uh, you were a great uh, traditional standard distance skier, World Cup skier. Uh, and then suddenly you moved to long distance skiing. How was that transition for you? I mean, did the double polling just was it a bit overwhelming for you, you know, first or you just felt? immediately felt uh, pretty comfortable with that. I've always liked the double polling and the summer training longer races, but uh, for sure, uh, I also got injured the first year. I think pretty much everybody who are going, doing the transit from regular skiing, which is like 30% running, 30% classic, 30% skating, uh, and then you change uh, over to like I did, 80 or 90% double polling and only 10% running or a little power. It's easy to get some injuries either in the hands, the elbow or the shoulders or the back. You know, it's it's uh, it's quite increased uh, injury risk, you know. So that's normal for the first year and then you actually get trained for it. You get adapted. So at that time when you did that transition, did you ever kind of feel that, or did you ever miss the kind of the standard distances going back, or were you like juggling a little bit, or were you adamant about it right away that this is what I want to do from now on? I don't think about you know the Olympics or the uh, World Championships anymore. It's face Musky Classics, or were you struggling there a little bit? Uh, the first year I was uh, a little one foot in each camp, you know. Uh, not knowing if this would suit me because it was on the dog polling and a lot of uh, at that time it was more mass sprints as well and then I was a little insecure if this would suit me or if I should stick to the regular World Cup races 
I felt I had still uh, some more to show for there. But the second year I was all all into Wismar Ski Classics and I've been really happy about that. What happened there that the second year you suddenly felt a little bit different? Did something change or the, the Wismar Ski Classics change or you changed or... Well, you can see, even though it's a flat race, it's po- still possible to make the race that hard that it won't be a dull po- a sprint race. So uh, it showed uh, that uh, the races are actually they are really cool to do. So uh, I really hope that they can even uh, develop the, the tour. And uh, I really welcome the skating races as well, if you we can put in three or four skating races there. To make it even more complete, long skate races is well, they are as good as the classic ones. Since you brought that up, you know, the development and as you said, uh, Visma Ski Classics and the Pro Tour is constantly evolving and, and developing. Uh, but I know that you always have lots of ideas and you're kind of an innovator. What things would you, besides skating, what things would you like to add or change? Uh, because so much has certainly happened from the time you joined, you know, now we have races back to back and even the hundred K race and, and so forth. I think you have done uh, already a really good, uh, good job and uh, adjusting the start times uh, or when it's possible to uh, not compete with the other cross country races, like in the world championships and so on, because if you are found on looking at cross country uh, as a spectator, you just enjoy looking at cross country. And then if it's a uh, 50 kilometer in the world championships, then you want to see that. And you also want to see the Vasloppe. So try to make them <laughs> not compete with each other, but uh, cool work, I think is really good. Both for the athletes, because they want to do races, they want to compete, and also for the spectators, because they want to watch, they want to see the sports. So I think you have done actually a really good job there. And what I miss about it is the, mostly the skating races, the Engadin race and Transurient, and maybe two more skating races with the both brought more international competitors from Italy, Italy, France, Switzerland, maybe Russia, but it would also make it. Uh, uh, more interesting, more variation about who is the winner, I think. That is certainly a fact, but of course there are two camps. You know, Some people say, uh, tend to agree with you, think exactly the same, would love to see more skating races, and then other people, and other, I'm talking about athletes as well, you guys, and then others think that it's better to stick with the double polling and become really good at what you guys are, which you already have done. You are the best in you know, double polling. Uh, but of course there's probably no, not a clear answer to that um but speaking of of course it's not a clear answer but it's very easy for those guys who are not good skaters to say that oh i only want classic races like uh, if you're a if you're a climber then you will say i don't want mass start races and if you're a sprinter you say oh i want masses uh, mass finish races you know so a sprint finish so actually we can't listen to the there are riders, I mean. I think we should uh, try to develop the sport and see who will be the best athlete in the end. That is true, and it's difficult to please everyone, as always. But thinking about long-distance skiing, not just Bismarck Ski Classics, but long-distance skiing uh, around it, 
and you kind of touch upon that a little bit the issue that the races shouldn't be you know uh overlapping the world cup races and the world championships and long distance skiing but what else could we do to promote or or enhance or boost up the the sport to make it because some people say that eventually long distance skiing or Visma ski classics could be even bigger than traditional skier skiing and of course the good thing is that we have the masses but what could or should be done uh, I think for sure we may need to stick with the masses and uh, keep us from start one place and go over a mountain or two around the lake and finish on another place uh, preferable on another place uh, together with uh, recreational skiers because then they can ski along uh, see and get a glimpse of what the best are doing compare themselves and also feel that they are with us just like the big marathons throughout the cities uh, and I think also that uh, spectators they really like uh, something spectacular like the finish in Cascata like uh, in Orsa or Ulustu uh, Levi, that could have been finishing up the Alpine Hill. People love a uh, really challenge in the end instead of uh, just, oh, that was just an okay uh, race, 30 kilometer, uh, six laps of five kilometer. I, well, then you can go do the World Cup if you want that kind of a race, six laps of uh, five kilometer. I know that sometimes we have to do it because of the snow situations, but I think if we can plan, we should really make plan for the traditional competitions, but also some uh, extreme races. Like the last uh, lap in Tour uh, Ski, that's the one they are talking about because they are finishing up an alpine hill. Yeah, I know you and I. We we've been talking about this a little bit. Let's levy, you know, that just to go up that, you know, the you know the downhill slope. But of course, that could be a little bit difficult for the uh, regular folks or the uh, the amateur skiers to do, or, or would it? I think it's. Uh, I think they can handle more than you believe, and I think they would also feel that. Uh, hey, now I'm really doing what. Uh, you did in Tour de Ski, and uh, now we can see the best guys. They did double poling up this hill. I had to do this uh, fishbone technique, but I made it. I made it, actually. And they can do more than you believe, you know. It's basically the challenge that people... people. I, mean, I think I agree with you. I mean, just think about the really long distances like Red Bull, Newton, Lopez. Nobody believed that people would do it. And now lots of regular folks are doing it. You know, distances yeah, like that. Even, even Vasalop and uh, Birkin, long after, long after we have finished and we have uh, changed clothes, make take the shower, we have been eating, we have been on the podium... And we are out in the, just passing the course. There are still people out there walking all day. So they, they can do it for sure. They want to do it. And I also remember you telling me once that uh, when we talk about long distance skiing and kind of the development, uh, that it's important, or at least at that time you felt that it's important that you guys, you as the stars of the sport, are very close to the, the masses, close to the people. That there's not this kind of a, which you refer to when you just... Uh, told me about your your uh, perspective or ideas that you shouldn't be away from the from the mass. You should be part of them. Unlike in many sports where the stars are stars and you, you they're unattainable, you can't really reach them. 
uh, talk to them, but you felt that it's important that you guys are part of this, that that the, the regular Joe uh, standing in a, in a bus a little bit, you know, a start line could, you know, come and talk to you guys and feel like you're, they're there. So is that something that you think it's important in, in our sport that we all the same, we all be the superstar or, or just a regular, regular skier? You still I do, share the I do same. believe that we maybe have to even do has the FISA Ski Federation actually have done with the World Cup to make uh, diagonal zones because most people are using kickwacks and doing the diagonal. And if we have to do that as well, maybe, maybe we'll come even closer to them and have the same... Uh, Nerve, nervousity at the start. What have you been waxing with? Uh, is it enough grip? Will the snow come? Will it change something? And put us in the same uh, boat as uh, all the other guys. I think uh, it might be interesting for the coming years to see if that can bring us closer to them. Because the all the recreational skiers, they, they know uh, <laughs> we are strong enough to do double polling all the way. Even even Reisalup is possible to do double polling, so that's not the point. It's uh, more important to keep the sport closer to the people and interesting for them to compare. I think. Oh, that's interesting. So you would basically think that uh, we could have like those uh, diagonal striding zones and long distance skiing. At least try it out. You know, that would be kind of interesting. Interesting concept. That like, like, yeah, right? not in not in all races. Like if you had put it there at Vasaloppe, I think we were just done the fishbone technique up that hill and then double pull anyway. But uh, races like uh, Reistaloppe and uh, similar races like Birikin, for instance, is possible to do really fast with kickworks as well. So if you make a long enough. Uh, areas where with a technical uh, technical area with a technical zone they call it i think we would have done the same as uh, the recreational skiers we have been nervous at the start putting on the vr45 or 50 and or the blue extra and then being nervous is this going to hold on for long enough and so on so i think that would have been really uh, yeah, putting us back in the same boat as the recreational skiers. So here we go. Once again, you are innovating, you know, coming up with, coming up with like, cool ideas. And speaking of which, uh, you are also the one who introduced uh, skating poles when you were uh, part of the Auckland Brothers team uh, way back then. You were the one who kind of came with the idea to use longer poles. And then I know that Peter Eliasen, for example, used skating poles when he won uh, um, Birken, for example. Where did you kind of come with that idea? Did you test it or how did you how did you find out that longer poles work better? Because that wasn't really a standard way back then when you came up with the, the idea. No, actually it was quite opposite. When I came in, to, um, had to learn from the best, you know, the Auckland guys. Uh, they uh, they were actually negative to, to the idea of longer poles. So uh, I tried it and they said, no, 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 you need to use shorter poles so you can come over the poles instead. And I tried that for a really long time throughout the summer, even the autumn training, until I had a month of training by myself without the team. And then then I had done the switch. I had done it every second 
training session with short and long poles and ended up with no no I'm I'm sure in my way that uh, for me it's longer poles is better is uh, at least in the appeals um on the longer or the what you call it, transport of the speed not the sprint but the more the competition speed longer poles is also good in flat conditions so yeah it was uh, actually uh, sometimes you have to work against what everybody else believes is the correct way to do it and how did you convince everyone else that uh, because pretty much after that everybody started to use long poles i even used sort of you know skating poles at one point so how and how did you turn their their heads around no actually yeah it's more like uh, the opposite you when you find something that is better you you tell your teammates you try to help them and uh, try to convince them that uh, try it for a longer, longer period of time and you will get used to it and you'll see Anders you have been using 150 poles for more than 30 years so it's quite difficult to make him change but you can't change after one training session you have to give it two or three weeks with training on longer poles but then on the other hand you don't want uh, Petri Eliasson and the other competitors to follow your example but for sure they they are looking at uh, at what we are doing and uh, testing out what uh, all the other competitors are doing and evaluating themselves and then pretty much everybody found that uh, longer poles you helps for double polling at least in the appeals. So, but now it's forbidden. Although it's not uh, very often tested, it's a uh, it's a maximum uh, limit for how long poles you can use. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, the FIS uh, regulation that uh, came about a few years ago. And, and so I assume that, that you weren't really too happy about it, you know, because you you were the kind of the, the firm believer in, in, in longer polls. And then suddenly we had to go back to the uh, kind of the basics again. So, uh, yeah, and I'm, what's more important is not only that they are changing that, I'm more into make a rule that has a perf- uh, purpose, you know. They made that rule because they did not want us to do double polling. But we are double polling with shorter poles. So it doesn't have any uh, effect, that rule. It only makes more regulations. So why but, don't we just uh, kill the rule? Why don't we just... It, you're right. I mean, it didn't do anything. I, I would say so. I would say kill the rule because it doesn't have anything to do. It just makes more regulation on the equipment. Uh, on the other hand, the technical zones, they have an effect because then you have to do classic technique. And when you have to do classic technique for a long enough period of the race, then you start waxing the skis. And then you have swallow that problem. So... That take the rule has an effect on the behavior of the World Cup athletes. So I think, okay, then you stick to that rule because it has an effect. And then you quit the other rule because it's just another rule. And then another uh, innovation, more like a discovery of yours, I think, was the drinking belts, correct? You also introduced that, you know, uh, the drinking belt with the tube and all that. Uh, can you uh, shed some light on that as well? 
Yeah, that's okay because there are so many using it now, so it's no that's no no secret anymore. Well, I think it was uh, since we are using the poles and the double poling all the time. It's uh, you don't want to waste any strokes by turning a belt, drinking, or uh, even going to the side, getting a bottle from one of the uh, service guys. Then you all there is always a risk for injury or uh, crashing or even stepping into some gales which someone are letting go in the service area so it's better to have fully focused there and drinking other areas of the competition and um, yeah that was part of developed to the to solve a problem is there anything else that you're coming up with, you know, that, like this coming season? Anything that you, you're cooking up in your head? Any new uh, innovations we, <laughs> we might of, uh, of see? Of course, of course. And there are some innovations that uh, hasn't worked out yet, at least. So uh, uh, I haven't put them all away, but uh, yes, I have, I have still some ideas. If not, then I think I would have uh, changed my job. That is good. But one thing that I'm always wondering is the double polling and the poles. You we talked about the length, uh, but still, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel that the, the development of the poles haven't really taken huge steps in terms of double polling. They could be the, the handles and the strips and all that could be much better and more designed for double polling. Could that be something that... Of course, it's both development in uh, equipments, in uh, procedures, in technique, in training uh, philosophy. So uh, I think when we are looking back 20 years from now, we will laugh at uh, ourselves and I will uh, tear out the rest of the hairs I, I don't have anymore from my head and say, why didn't I do that, you know? And uh, I'll uh, laugh and cry over each other. Indeed. Uh, next, we will talk about uh, training. But before we get to training, I still kind of want to go back, way back to uh, uh, to those years when you did uh, Olympics and World Championships. You know, if you kind of recall those and the memories uh, and 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 the good things about your three Olympics and three World Championships, uh, what did you what 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 are the the dearest memories? Uh, that you have right now of the training no, no, of, of, the, of, of the Olympics and the world championships and your years in the standard distances oh it's been perfect there's been a really interesting and a cool uh, experience to travel around the, the national team and participate in both the world uh, Olympics and also the world championships it's uh, well, a, a lot of great memories from there. So, uh, especially the World Championships in Oslo was a really nice experience for the Norwegian athletes, I think. I think it was a really nice experience for all the athletes who participated. And you have medals. You have, the, the as I mentioned, two bronze medals and you have the gold medals uh, in, in relay. And now, those compared to, let's say, like Vasilopet. Which one, right now, which one do you value value more? Or are they the same? Or do you even value? Oh, I think it's so hard to evaluate the difference in the results because uh, 
one thing is the performance, another thing is the results, you know, because a cross-country result uh, depends on, number one, your own performance, the ski's performance, which is a cooperation with the factory or the ski brand, the waxer of the team and the tester and the whole uh, system around the team that everything is working out quite fine and it's also about did the other athletes succeed from the other teams or uh, national uh, nationalities did they succeed with their job so there are so much more to a result than just your own uh, performance so there are uh, other races which are uh, why I'm more happy about my own performance than the necessarily the biggest races. So Turasle, your training philosophy, I mean, you must have done something really, really right because you always you always so good. I mean you had performed so well in the, the traditional skiing and then long distance skiing, but Overall, do you have a philosophy? And if so, what is it? Because based on these interviews that I've been doing with uh, pro team athletes, there's so many different ways and, and, and philosophies that you guys have. Some believe in block training. Some believe in kind of a traditional two, two really intensive trainings a week and then long distance or the endurance training. They don't mix uh, intensity with uh, endurance. Some do. So what is your method? Oh, first of all, it's uh, it has changed over the years, uh, and I think uh, you need to train. Number one, you need to train from where you are, not where you wish to be or where the competitors are. So, you have to, first of all, find out where are your qualities and what can I do about my qualities and how do I improve them. And then you have to put up a program or make a, your own philosophy of what to do to improve those and stick to your plan and evaluate at the end of the season. That's been always the way we work at the, uh, around the teams where I've been. And uh, there are no, well, no answers with double lined uh, under it. So it's not easy to... Uh, not easy to find uh, what actually did work and uh, why did it work that year but not this year? Why did it? Uh, why does it work for me but not for uh, uh, my teammate? So uh, uh, that's always interesting to uh, talk about training with uh, other athletes. That is true. And uh, you mentioned that it changed. Your philosophy has changed. What kind of happened there? How did it change and in what ways? Uh, first of all, uh, from my youth and uh, the early years of uh, World, Ch uh, World Cup skiing, I was really into uh, uh, alternative training, different kind of trainings to not be tired in the muscles and the techniques which you should have the next hard training in. And uh, then I developed into more specificity at the World Cup races. And the same did in the long distance races. 
And now these last two years, I've been more into be ready for the harder exercises as well. Can you elaborate then on that a little bit? What kind of sessions do you do? You do and like when you do long long sessions versus the uh, the intervals slash uh, intensity trainings. Can you give us some some yeah. examples of some of those? The first years uh, of uh, Visma Ski Classic race, we did a lot of this uh, typically long distance races, which is uh, one hour power training or one hour with intensity training, going directly out on a two hour uh, training, just slow training, and then directly into a new interval and maybe even some speed at the end. Um, I haven't done that so much of that the last two years or three years now i'm more into having all single intervals or keeping the cardio maximum oxygen uptake into own sessions and the longer trainings into separate days so i believe that uh, that's what my body needs now to not become even slower you know so you're not in a firm believer in the what they call the Vasalopas type of trainings where you do four or five hours and then you mix it with intervals and sprints and try to mimic Vasalopet. You think that it's better to have easy trainings, easy, and hard trainings, hard. Yes. The last uh, three years I've had more focus there, yes. And how often do you have these uh, intensive sessions per week or does it change depending on a week? Yeah, of course it changes and it depend, uh, changes over the calendar. In the springtime, I just uh, have nothing of it. And in the summertime, I have uh, maybe once a week, at least in the end of the summer. And at the autumn, I have a lot of uh, intensive uh, training, up to five intensive trainings a week. And then comes the winter, then you adjust more into into every into the next competition and into the bigger competition. So then it's more adaptable and suitable for the coming races. And of course, there are different types of intensity trainings and intervals, of course, there. Uh, but can you give us an, like an example of your typical, or maybe your favorite interval interval session? Is it like uh, three times 10 minutes or six times 10? Or what is your your method when, whenever you do uh, interval training? When I do this threshold training, it's usually about an hour, I think. It's either uh, the one loop, uh, one hour altogether, finishing with some more apples, starting with more flat terrain, or it's on a treadmill or a Herculina or a ski erg which usually is eight times, eight minutes, one minute uh, break. I think I'm really fond of those kind of intervals where you have to really work the pace and keep it there for a longer time. Then you get a lot of minutes at a correct technique and uh, accessible uh, yeah, challenge, but also uh, manageable. And then you have to have uh, extra shorter intervals with uh, even higher speed to make more power. 
So when you say shorter, do you do like speed training, like really short, 30 second, 40 second sprints, like the rec sprints, uh, as they call the Ramudan guys, 40 seconds, really fast, 20 second uh, recovery, uh, which is a speed training exercise. Uh, not not at this part of the season, but in the winter time, yes, it comes uh, comes along with this more speed uh, training as well. Yes, and there is also this from the runners. They have this forty five seconds on and fifteen seconds off. That's also an interesting way of training. You know, easy to always keep uh, motivated and uh, focused because you always get these small breaks, and so you manage to go at a higher speed than your threshold but the feeling of it and the heart rate is more closer to threshold those are tough sessions when you go 40 40 or 45 seconds fast and then have a short recovery you can't go that or maybe you can but you for that long how long do you usually go you know for something until it becomes too uh, uh intensive oh uh, that depends on how hard you uh, put the pace you know so I have a lot of those at uh, six times ten, six times ten minutes, as well. But then you don't, then you go, don't go all guns blazing. You uh, save a little, correct? Yeah, then you go, uh, you go harder than threshold, but not, not all, all in. No, of course, because then it will be too hard, you know. Indeed. Uh, what about strength? training i found it kind of interesting uh, based on these discussions and podcasts that i've done that lots of particularly the younger generation max novak and even uh uh amy parison and and uh, those guys not really that keen on strength training uh, and but i assume rakti guys did quite a lot of uh weightlifting uh, what about you how do you feel about strength training right now at this stage and age Oh, I've been into a lot of strength training, both at the national team and also at the rugby team. But uh, the last Corona period, there has been no uh, heavy weightlifting at uh, inside the training gyms. So it's been more specific uh, power training. And uh, actually, that's quite uh, interesting if you keep it more specific. And uh, it's so actually, uh, do you do it for, to become stronger or do you do it to stay your technique better? So there are a lot of uh, different ways to look at why do you do what you do. And then what about uh, doing different sports? Do you run? Do you cycle? Do you do anything, anything else like in the summertime, maybe even kayaking or rowing like some people do i know that Auckland brothers like you know they're kayaking quite a lot of uh what about you or is it always roller skiing and and maybe running yeah the last year it's been mostly uh, double polling and running yes uh, before i was more into kayak and cycling as well and swimming but the last years it's been actually uh, only double polling and running how often do you run by the way well, now I run, uh, yeah, what do I say? It's uh, two out of three days I do running. And two out of three days I do double polling or uh, or uh, likewise inside. And how much do you do skating or diagonal striding? Three times a year, perhaps. 
Not that often. Not that often. <laughs> uh, but you used to be a good skater too. But uh, do you ever miss that? You don't even use that in the winter time, just for fun, or just? Uh... Yeah, of course. I can I can use it sometimes if I'm going out for just uh, one hour, just uh, recreational, and just yeah, need to clear my head or go out and just enjoy in the moonlight or something. Not for the training, but just for the uh, enjoy of it. But uh, for the training, it's more into specific trainings. Then it's either a long double pulling session for making uh, yeah, the muscles and the joints prepared for these long races. Or it's an interval. And then you also try to keep it close or uh, like uh, competition-wise. You know? So then it's mostly double pulling. Or it can be an extra additional interval where you then do different kind you know then it's more into then it can be in winter time diagonal but uh, more a lot of times running just to get the heart rate up i was going to ask you about that you know because some people still use diagonal striding like classic skiing you know for sprints or go going up a steep hill you know uh, because of the vo2 max uh, uh, but do you, you do you still use that every once in a while uh, and or is it just mainly double pulling now for you yeah, it's uh, it's often to do that as a second interval during a day or as the day before the race, but then it's just to get the heart rate up without uh, getting tired in the muscles, you know. So. And I also noticed that you guys, at least uh, way back when you were in uh, in Rakte, that you used uh, diagonal striding or classic skiing day before, uh, mm, just to, like an easy pace, too. easy pace uh, training day before a race. Yeah, and also to speed up the heart rate and uh, get ready with the breathing without uh, uh, wearing out the muscles for the double pulling. Because there are the ski classics races, they are long races, so you have to get prepared, you know. Indeed you do. Uh, uh, before we leave this uh, subject, the training, uh, let's think about the uh, the regular folks, you know, the, um, the amateur skiers or you know, the skiers that still want to do well, what kind of tips would training-wise would you give to them? What are the most important things for, let's say, a typical Vasalopet skier who wants to be in the top 500 or something like that, wants to do well, but of course are not able to train uh, like you guys are? Let's say they are training, uh, try to train every day from half an hour to two hours of running and skiing. Then I would say... Uh, do uh, do uh, what you need to uh, want to be good at. So if it's uh, Birken and diagonal, train a lot of skiing and diagonal. If it's Vasloppe, do a lot of double polling in addition to the diagonal. Uh, if you're training for a New York marathon or likewise, do a lot of running because that's what you will compete in. And uh, secondly, I would say uh, have all selected days where you go hard or harder and selected days where you go slower and you finish the training session and you say, hey, that wasn't even training. Why did I do this? It was way too slow. Yes, that's great. It was perfect for you. It was a perfect speed. So basically the change in pace, that's what you think is the most important for you know, those type of skiers. 
Yeah, I believe a lot of them are going into this threshold every training session, and then that threshold in the first months of training, you increase and increase and increase, and then actually decline a bit. Maybe you can the speed declines, but maybe you can keep the pace for a little longer. But uh, I would say and do every second day, fast and slow, fast and slow, because then you will uh, increase your competition speed. Well, that's a good advice to you people out there listening. Every other day you can go slow and every other day you can go fast. That is really a good tip. But we are moving on to the last part of this podcast, which is what I tend to call the up close and personal. We will talk about you, Turasle, uh, as, as a person and as a father. So, Turasle, you are a, a proud father and you are a family man. So, uh, but tell us about your your family and what the fatherhood has actually brought to you. Oh, being a father uh, is uh, is amazing, uh, especially for my kids. There are, there are a lot of fun. Uh, gives a lot of extra smile on my face. So, yes, they can uh, stay awake at night and they can shout and make some noise but still there is a lot of fun in them and I'm lying a lot on the floor playing Lego and uh, playing with dolls so uh, it's giving an extra addition to the life How old are they now? My son is uh, just turned eight and the girl is four and a half Good ages <laughs> Yeah it's perfect Uh I remember that you once said that the family is part of the reasons that you tend to train like once a day because then you get to spend more time with your family. Your training is over. You do it in the morning, then it's done. Uh, uh, so is that still kind of the the philosophy that you have? Yes, I uh, deliver at, uh, or he's walking to school, but uh, I send him off to school and uh, send my girl to kindergarten. Then I do the training and then I'm ready for them. Um, either picking up or staying home when they are coming home. So we have the afternoon together instead of doing a second training from four to six o'clock and then having one hour with them before it's bedtime. So they are uh, coming in the door any moment. So if it's there will suddenly become a lot of noise, then you know what's happening. <laughs> Indeed we do. Uh, what about your uh, wife? How did you guys meet and what is she doing uh, profession-wise? Yeah, we are uh, we are becoming a bit old, you know. So it's before. Uh, well, it wasn't before Facebook, but it was way before this other uh, Tinder and Snapchat ages. So we met at party, like the good old days. And she's a nurse and aesthetics. So she's working at Ullevål. And that's uh, shift working, or uh, you have uh, night work, some days, evening, some works during daytime. So she's uh, changing that every every day around. And uh, that's why it's very good for me to have this kind of uh, later training and be able to deliver or pick up the kids any day, because... Early shifts, she's leaving before the kids are waking up, and uh, evening and night times, we would need a kindergarten, especially when I'm, or daycare, like when I'm at uh, races, you know. 
So when you guys met at that party, what was it about her that attracted you to her? What qualities, what things that uh, just you know oh, pulled, pulled you this, over? Oh yeah, it was the smile, this uh, the look in her eyes when she's smiling, and the way she's uh, laughing and having fun, and she's. Uh, Pretty uh, intense on energy as well, so we had a had a hell of a run there. So that was cool. What do you guys do as a family? If you leave skiing aside, uh, how do you spend your time? Yeah, beside uh, normal uh, occupations like uh, getting home from school and uh, changing, eating, uh, driving to. Uh, Gymnastics, football, or training, or holiday—that they call it—is uh, um, about doing homework and uh, yeah, going out, having fun, learning to bicycle, learning to train a little bit, uh, going on hiking, firing up, uh, lighting up a uh, fire, and uh, what do you call barbecue some sausages or burgers out there it's actually a no- quite normal life for a norwegian guy i think so do you when you have a vacation do you guys ever go anywhere or you just stay home and barbecue those sausages and steaks or do you go yeah, to another yeah. country this this year we did a lot of uh hitchhiking or uh, tenting along along the coastline but uh, also uh, going down down to a little warmer conditions like Italy is also uh, suitable for the family. And what else do you like to do besides spending time with your family and skiing? Or do you have any time for anything else that just consumes your your life? At the moment, I don't have uh, much time extra. Well... Uh, my wife, she's doing a master on this uh, science as well, so I'm helping her a little bit, and we're doing some science with another project of mine, so I I, I like to keep busy, and I like uh, playing with the numbers and the graphs and, and make them showable in different ways, you know, so uh, I find that interesting as well. Speaking of school and education, and, and what is kind of your background there, uh I did uh, medical uh, for becoming a doctor, so I'm, I'm, I've done uh, education for at school. So I only have the practice, or what you call it, for becoming a real doctor left. But uh, yeah, we will see. And that's certainly something you want to do eventually after your skiing career. You want to be a doctor? Yeah, certainly i become. What's uh, What fascinates you about that? particular vocation or profession helping people it's more into the understanding of a problem or the physiology or how it works and how you can help someone to fix that to fix uh, either uh, not actually the broken arm but fix how it works or how you develop an issue and how you can uh, fix that problem into making it functional again. That's really fascinating me. Since you are an innovative person and always coming up with uh, all kinds of ideas and, and, and things, have you ever considered uh, uh, being an entrepreneur maybe after your skincare? Maybe have your own practice 
as as a doctor or do you feel like it's it's easier better to work for someone else I've actually had a lot of different ideas and uh, especially when I was educating I had a prior period that oh this subject I will not go into is so uh, difficult and uh, diffuse and then Destiny decided me for three weeks at uh, that department in uh, in Oslo here at one part of the hospital and it got really interesting so uh, I've uh, actually decided not to pull myself into any directions too much too early and uh, cutting off the others because there are a lot of interesting subjects out there. When we started this podcast, you said you're still young. You're 38 years old, something like that, correct? Right now? Yeah. Well, uh, you still have a lot of years compared to <laughs> your former teammate, Anders Auckland. But uh, realistically speaking, how long do you think you can or would like to continue skiing? Or is it still kind of up in the air? You don't know. Yeah, it's more like I don't know. I look at Anders and take a lot, a lot of knowledge from him and see that... Uh, I can, I can, if I do the correct thing and have the body for it and the mind for it, I can still stay on the top for another five years. But uh, after that, I think it will be difficult to win that many races. But it's still possible to be there and keep racing if I have the body and the mind for it. If I will continue more than one year, I don't know. But uh, it's better to... Uh, attack a new and one new and one new instead of saying I'm going to do it for another 10 because that's a long long way to go speaking of uh, Mr. Auckland uh, would you say that he has definitely changed he has pushed the envelope and he has changed the kind of the perspective that we have that now people like you even considering that hey I could even go much longer than maybe originally you know planned or thought about he might, uh, well, at least it's an eye-opener on the way to show. But there has always been guys uh, showing that it's possible. And that's what I try to show the kids, that you can do it if you want. You just have to work for it. And even the marathon ladies are uh, running very good, way up to their 40s. So I think that a lot of the best athletes they quit because of motivational uh, issues not uh, physical difficulties indeed that is that is correct there are still a lot of uh, world-class athletes that are over 40 and still performing well what else do you value in life besides uh, your family skiing of course very important to you but what are kind of the fundamental values of things that that you uh, appreciate or Held highly, hold highly. <clears throat> I find uh, getting a task and looking at it from different perspective and solving a task with an improved performance. That's what uh, triggers me the most. And uh, whether it's into sports or uh, another kind of uh, occupation, is I don't think that's any different. It's the challenge there that uh, inspires me to wake up and uh, get going. So uh, kind of a continuation to that. How would you then describe yourself? Are you like a taskmaster? Are you problem solver then? Or if you had to, you know, define or describe yourself, how would you do it? 
Yeah, I think I'm more into uh, looking at tasks and uh, performing them and solving them than to uh, just uh, cruising around, uh, staying in touch with uh, everybody all the time. And then since you've been around for so long, you know, skiing and all that, is there anything or something that we don't know about you? Something that might come as a surprise to, to our listeners? <laughs> Probably a lot. But, uh, Is there anything you would like uh, to share with us? No, I'm so really lousy at this uh, uh, coming up with uh, what, what's uh, unusual about me because uh, I don't know actually what is usual, you know. So uh, I come from a family which uh, we're proud of being different. So uh, everything has been a bit uh, different in my life for a long time. So I'm just, uh, yeah, ain't that normal? <laughs> well, one thing that you really uh, known about and known for is the, your, your aviator classes. Of course, that's been asked you so many times, you know, the kind of the history history of that. But once again, let's go back there, you know, and, and can you shed some light on that, you know, and that's your trademark. You're a Mr. Aviator. Yeah, it uh, became a trademark pretty early. It started out with uh, having this sponsor with these kind of glasses and the salesman who said, oh, can't you do them? And no, 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 it's not possible. They are not real professional skiing glasses. You can't use them. You know, you have to be a professional. And then I tried them and they worked out. And then you got some, uh, I got some uh comments on hey what they're doing are trying to show off and so on and actually it's they try to do it to, in a mean way in like push push me down to raise themselves above me made me uh, re think that no way i should keep on with these glasses they are they are functional enough for me and it's okay and it's uh, i feel confident by using them although you don't like them and uh, then suddenly the journalists uh, got really into them, so it started snowing one race, and I changed them for this normal casco, shadow uh, or what you call it, uh, screen. Then they started asking if I suddenly became uh, not professional but serious, that I was no not fun anymore. It was getting really uh, serious this time. And then, what? Haven't I been serious about my skiing? So uh, then I found out, okay, if this is supposed to be me, it's okay. Then I welcome it fully and kept them for all the races ever since. So you are the one that always goes against the the trends and, and the, kind of the mainstream. And you mentioned that you you grew up in a family that, that was different. Do you, do you feel that maybe that's something we need more of that in, in, in sports and particularly in our sport? A little bit of this. Uh, uh, wouldn't call it outrageous mentality, but kind of like that. You create your own brand or trademark, and and uh, because ultimately it's all about entertainment, like you said earlier. Should we have more people doing a little bit of crazy things? At least you should do it when it's uh, functional for you. I'm really into that. I'm not trying to be special just to be special. I've had experience uh, close by for that, and I don't think that's suitable. But when something different suits you, stick with it, no matter what the other people are saying, because who cares, actually? 
So uh, when you do that, then stick with it. And uh, now in Norway, we have uh, one journalist trying to make uh, this Formula One uh, uh, series, Drive to Survive, at as uh, long-distance skiers, starting here in Norway and maybe going little to some of the profiles in Sweden and someone else. And then I think it's really cool to try to give in to the entertainment and say, yeah, it is entertainment first and foremost, and the competition second. Indeed, that is very important that you stick to what you believe in. And, and this is a good segue for us to the last, the last question then, uh, to wrap things up. What would be kind of your advice a motto you know for for the people people listening to to this so that they can stay true to themselves the the best uh, advice i feel is uh, try to go into training gym and uh, look at the other guys training how much are you actually looking at them and seeing how they do the, their technique and then you realize hmm I'm not actually paying that much attention to how deep he's doing his squats or not. Well, that goes for the other guys for you as well. They're not that interested in how you do your squats or your uh, chins. So do your thing and be happy with it. And if someone are giving a comment, then you can just yeah look up the, any newspaper at, the, at your pay, uh, your own country and see that there are hundreds of comments as soon as it become relevant in length and then someone are for and someone are against someone will always have an opinion about what you do as long as even if you say everything politically correct there will be someone uh, nagging about it or someone giving a thumb up so there are different opinions anywhere that is a really a good ending for this because in this day and age of course the world is changing but the most important thing for us is to uh, stick to to what we believe in and, and be brave enough to be ourselves uh, thank you very much to us it's always a pleasure uh, talking to you having you as as a guest and i think it'll be a great season for you and your team uh, the season uh, uh, 12 uh, so good luck there and let's see if you can win birken next uh, winter oh i'll try thank you thank you Tim. and you people out there uh, listening to usha tulevi stay tuned for more episodes to come of course and remember you can send us uh, feedback questions requests and stuff like that and the address is podcast at wsportsmedia.com for now i say goodbye and uh, talk to you guys and see you guys soon bye bye This podcast is a W Sports Media production.